0: You know, every once in a while, as you're reading through the Old Testament, you can look at a law or a ritual and think, well, no, I've seen that mentioned before. Um, I've seen this kind of sacrifice named before. I've seen this kind of instruction or if-then situation that seems like deja vu. Um, When you get to Numbers chapter 6 and you see, okay, the Nazarite vow, don't think I've seen that before. So when you get to Numbers chapter 6, this is not the kind of law or ritual where we think, oh yeah, this is just like the earlier thing. Something new occurs here, and uh, we see here what uh, is not a ritual or a vow discussed at length prior. It's also not discussed at length after this either. Uh, This is one of those chapters where where is the Nazarite section of uh, Scripture where that vow is discussed? It's only number six. So that's that's where the vow is talked about. And we want to get our minds tonight around what this means, why it mattered in the life of Israel and how, as New Covenant Christians, we should approach this thing called the Nazarite vow. Um, This may be something you've heard before, the expression Nazarite vow. And, um, and if you thought, people from Nazareth, are those the Nazarites? Nope. Okay, so there's the town Nazareth, and the Nazarenes are from there. Nazarite doesn't relate to Nazareth by uh, its uh, root. So a Nazarite is a particular uh, word that refers to being set apart or consecrated. And it doesn't have anything directly to do with the town Nazareth where Jesus was from. So we, we immediately just want to make a distinction here. Nazarite, Nazareth, we don't want to equate those things in our thinking. Uh, but this is the only place in the whole uh, Old Testament where the Nazarite vow is explained. And we want to reflect on it. First of all, it's placement. Notice in Numbers 1 through 4, we looked at length of the order and arrangement of Israel's camp. They were very specifically ordered to live here and arrange there and position this tribe and clan here. Um, And then in Numbers 5, we were reminded that this ordered and arranged camp is to be Uh, ritually clean. They are to have a ritual fittedness to approach the tabernacle. Not just ritually, but also in Numbers 5, ethically and morally, they are to pursue what is right before God and live in a way with their neighbor and in the camp that keeps the laws. There is an opportunity that those in Israel's camp can consider An additional voluntary vow of special focus and separation. And we would call this the vow of the Nazarites. Uh, So to to, uh, condense it for you, we would say this is a voluntary, temporary vow of special devotion. This is a voluntary, temporary vow of special devotion. So if we have noticed that... uh, the priests of Israel have a lot of requirements. If we notice that the people in the in the land and in the camp have to be ritually fit and clean, then a, the Nazarite vow is to say of the group of Israel uh, Israelites and the tribes, people can make a special commitment, temporary, voluntarily. Now you might say, well, aren't there some Old Testament? exceptions to that, and your mind might think of someone like Samson, and we will deal with his case in a bit because his indeed is a little different of a Nazarite vow situation. Uh, So three parts to the passage tonight. These 21 verses begin with making the vow. What does it entail? Why would someone do it? What's it involve avoiding? Verses 1 to 8 are about making the Nazarite vow. Then there is the situation that can arise that your vow for a certain length of time could be disrupted. And I'm calling it restarting the Nazarite vow because that's exactly what would happen. You don't just pick up where you left off. It restarts all together. And then completing the Nazarite vow. What happens when that goal has been met? What is the, uh, the aftermath of completing that vow? That's what the remaining parts of the passage. So making it. What if we have to restart it? And then what happens when it's completed? Okay, verses 1 to 8 give us the making the Nazarite vow. The Lord said to Moses... Saying, speak to the people of Israel, say to them, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall, and then there's going to be some prohibitions, okay, of things to avoid. Uh, Notice immediately in verse 2, while the priesthood is limited to males from Levi's tribe and descendant from Aaron's sons, the Nazarite vow is not so limited, In fact, the Nazarite vow is for people among the tribes of Israel. It's for people who are male and people who are female. And so it's not specific to a gender or to a tribe. It tells us in verse 2, when either a man or a woman makes a special vow. So you're the one making this vow. And you might say, well, how long does this vow last? Well, it varies. And it really becomes subjective to the vow maker. You might make a vow for three months and say, We're, I'm going to live in a certain way out of the norm of my pattern and rhythm of life for special focus in devotion to the Lord or service to the Lord. And then that vow will come to an end. And it's not just you see serving or following the Lord. It's just that certain normal patterns of living are reintroduced. And in um, one one uh, example from church history that is sometimes brought to mind that even continues in the present day, somebody might say, aren't these similar to like priests and nuns, someone who might make a particular vow, avoiding particular things and living in a kind of way, you know, like the life of a, of someone at a monastery where they are they are living in such a way that's not the normal patterns and rhythms of others who would be professed followers of Yahweh. Well, then the thing to keep in mind that would be different is there's no uh, vow of celibacy that's required here. So it's not one-to-one correspondence, but it might give you just an example of how people in our day and age and in church history have said they're going to commit to something and for some manner of time. So this vow is used to separate to the Lord, the word Nazarite, it's called that because the word comes from this word in Hebrew that means separated or consecrated. So a Nazarite is someone who has vowed some kind of separation or consecration unto the Lord. And it does not tell us it has to start at a certain age, it doesn't tell us the vow goes for a certain length of time. That is very much up to the discretion of the vow maker. However, Vows in the Old and New Testament are such that when they are made, they ought to be treated with the utmost care and gravity. And that means if someone were to make a vow and not take it seriously and violate the Nazarite vow criteria, their time spent is null and void Altogether, uh, Now, why would someone do this? Well, it's not because you're trying to show yourself a believer in Yahweh. Uh, we wouldn't want to say, okay, in order to show yourself a believer in Yahweh, make sure, you know, have you made your Nazarite vow yet? Or uh, how many Nazarite vows have you made so far? Um, you know, not, this is not like uh, notches on a belt that would be um, any kind of uh, thing to point to. Instead, this is an individual decision That's not meant to be um, characterized with self-righteousness or superiority. That's about discipline and self-control. And sometimes we can recognize that our self-control and discipline might need some training or some precision. You might adopt certain bodily rhythms, for example. Maybe changes in eating or changes in maybe workout or exercise activity that for a period of time, you're trying to make some necessary changes. That might not be a permanent thing you install all the days of your life, but it is to say, you know what, for the way things are right now, here's some changes that are going to be made, and, um, and then maybe hopefully for this long. A vow that is associated with overriding normal behavior to focus with self-discipline and self-control a devotion to the Lord. Um, I don't even think we should assume a Nazarite was always known as such to everyone, even though the long hair would give it away, or at least make somebody ask the question, are you a Nazarite? So here we have the making of the vow voluntarily, temporarily, and here is what's to be abstained from. Verses three through eight tell us Three abstentions. What do they avoid? First of all, in verse 3, "...he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine, which that must mean a kind of wine that over time becomes quite sour like a vinegar." Uh, Or a strong drink shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, uh, fresh or dried. See, the word dresh is a mending together of dried and fresh. You just need to know that. Fresh or dried. And then verse 4. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. It's like, Okay. We get the point now, avoiding everything from the vineyard. Like that's the idea. Don't know grapes, nothing that's produced from the grapes, nothing that over time would become sour from that drink. This is a very thorough avoidance language, isn't it? Verses 3 and 4. Avoid what comes from the grapevine. We notice in verse 20 that after the Nazarite vow is completed, look at the last expression of verse 20. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. So the view here is not that the drinking of the wine for this Nazarite was sinful uh, before the vow, and now he's going to be avoiding sin. This is not an avoidance of sin. This is a time of abstaining from something for a particular reason, and then there is a return to it at the end of that vow. Uh, So I'm just going to notice what at the beginning and end correspond. Now, second thing to avoid. We're told in verse 5, he shall not touch the hair of his head with a razor. And that means exactly what it sounds like. So we're saying no cutting the hair. We're saying just letting it all come. That's exactly right. Verse 5, all the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his of hair of his head grow long. Well, uh, no summer cuts. Okay, so this is avoiding. There's no, there's no tailoring it. There's no uh, fixing it in a way that involves a razor. That is for the entire length of the vowel to be avoided. So pro- uh, prohibiting uh, the use of anything from the grapevine. Uh, secondly, we are not uh, cutting the hair. And a good question to ask is, why would that be? I mean, it's not like cutting the hair is wrong, and so they're avoiding something that is sinful. That's not what these avoidances are about, right? Not in the first case or the second. This cutting the hair is something speculated upon by different Old Testament scholars who thought about why this part of uh, avoidance would be of any use. And here are a couple suggestions. It may be the idea that the hair symbolizes with the crown of the person's head devotion of the whole life to the Lord. And so you are letting this grow long so that this will eventually be given to the Lord after the vows completed. Okay, more on that in a minute. You're going to burn all that hair up in a sacrifice. Okay, so that's what's coming. But for the time being, this is growing out as like a living thing. Um, It lengthens because it's living. One writer puts it this way. Because the hair is a living part of the body, it was a natural symbol for the life of the person. This is better than, let's say, uh, taking off one of one's limbs and offering that to the Lord. All right, that's not what's required. But instead, here's something that actually grows from the body that can be removed, having it uh, w- with it being alive, and then can be given to the Lord and then it grow back, okay? So the, the, uh, the hair may have that kind of symbolism, something that can grow, something that can represent the person, and something that can be taken off and given to the Lord as an offering. All of those ideas might explain the focus there of the hair. Now, third and final avoidance. We're avoiding anything from the grapevine. We are not cutting the hair for the length of the vow. Verse 6 all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. And um, this is what will trigger the verses, verses 9 to 12 that are to come, because that can be trickier. You, um, if you are a Nazarite uh, because you've taken this vow and you are living with other people, well, you're not given all of this heads up ahead of time of what you're going to have to deal with with regard to people being ill or dying. And so it's very possible that in the course of your life, you could have a relative or a parent or someone in your home that dies. And um, that is what will lead into verses 9 to 12. But for all that it can depend on you, you're to separate yourself to the Lord by not going near a dead body. Um, dead bodies. Why, why picking on that? This probably has to do with what we've seen in Exodus and Leviticus. The spectrum of life and death... Life represented by the tabernacle, the presence of Yahweh, and then onward out with concentric circles outside the camp where the remains and refuse and the dead are buried. Here to speak about a corpse with someone who's devoted himself to the Lord is to become unclean. And therefore, this is different. It's not as if drinking wine would make one unclean. It's not as if cutting the hair would make one unclean. But if you're going to devote yourself with a holy separation to the Lord, you must not become unclean. And one thing that would do that is contact with a dead body. This is quite a requirement because the high priest was forbidden to have contact with a dead body. It would render the high priest unclean and unable to perform the tabernacle rituals. But a normal Israelite, and I just mean normal in the sense of uh, they have not made this vow. Um, if you are an Israelite who's not a Nazarite, a non-Nazarite Israelite, that's what I'm saying. If you are, um, if you have a relative that dies, you're ritually unclean, but it doesn't put you in the situation that the Nazarite finds themselves in. All right. So verse seven. How how far do we carry this? Don't go in contact with a dead body. Well, here's how far. Verse seven. Not even for his father or for his mother, or for brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Now the priests in the tabernacle were forbidden to drink wine before going on duty in the tabernacle. You get that in Leviticus 10. The Nazarites were forbidden to consume anything from the grapevine all the days of their vow. Whereas normal, ordinary priests, non-high priests, could mourn their close relatives, according to Leviticus 21, the Nazarites couldn't. Something that's striking to me, that's never stood out to me before looking at this closely this past week, is how much more demanding than even ordinary priesthood aspects of this vow are. So, if you were not from the tribe of Levi, or the sons of Aaron, You would not ever function as a priest at the tabernacle. But if you took a Nazarite vow, the kind of restrictions upon your life could even be higher than what was demanded of them in their ordinary lives. Uh, It's quite something. So temporary, voluntary, but quite restrictive. Um, And you might say, well, you know, how many people would normally do this? Well, there's no indication in Scripture of any kind of proportion or statistic. So I have zero numbers to report. I wish we had a sense of, like, how many Israelites ever actually did something like this or attempted it. Um, We don't know. We don't know. Even in the book of Amos, there's reference to Nazarites, but never a kind of percentage. I think we could see the, the, uh, the, the sense, though, that given how demanding this is, this might not be something pursued by many. Or if pursued, wouldn't be pursued for lengthy periods of vow-making. Now, verses 9 to 12 give us a little caveat. Three things to avoid, right? No wine, nothing from the grapevine. No cutting the hair. No contact with the dead body. But what if you do make contact with the dead body? Verses 9 to 12 are going to envision a daily scenario it might not be, you know, incidental that you take something from the grapevine. You probably would be quite conscious and aware of what's being passed around, what's in this cup or that cup, and you can be quite deliberate to avoid certain things. Similar to cutting your hair, unless somebody's doing that while you're sleeping. Uh, more on that story in a little bit. (laughs) There's one coming, um, because there is such a thing with Samson, right? But, um, But there is one thing that can be quite incidental beyond your control, and that is knowing when someone in your home dies. When that should happen, and uh, and that's the reason these verses are given, certain protocols click into place. Verse 9, and if a man dies very suddenly beside him, that means the Nazarite. And he, the Nazarite, defiles his consecrated head. Which means the thing that symbolizes his life devoted unto God has come in contact with what is dead. Then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. Normally, contact with the corpse would lead you ritually unclean for a week. And that's what's in view here. So just like normal clean and unclean laws, you would be ritually unfit to approach worship at the tabernacle. For seven days. But if you're a Nazarite, when that period of uncleanness ends, the hair comes off. And not because you're going to go burn it on the altar. This restarts. In verse 10, the next day, on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering, and make atonement for him, because he sinned by reason of the dead body, and he shall consecrate his head that same day. Consecrate the head simply means it's shaved the day before, and now I'm devoting my life once again for this period of separation to avoiding the three things, including cutting my hair, and including the dead body avoidance, including the, the substances from the grapevine. In verse 12, and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation and bring a male lamb, a year old for a guilt offering. But the previous period shall be void because his separation was defiled. Now, there are historical records of people trying different Nazarite vow lengths of time uh, that sometimes run years long. I read of one story of of a woman who had tried a Nazarite vow for seven years, and in the final year of completing it, violated one of these criteria in history and restarted it altogether. In other words, you think seven years, but who knows whether that was the norm. Somebody might make a vow for two weeks. Somebody might make a vow for two months or two years. There are some very unique occasions in the Old Testament where something seems to be all one's life long. Uh, again, on the, uh, more on that in just a bit. So these steps to restart the Nazarite vow involve, first of all, you shave your head on the seventh day when your uncleanness ends. Number two, on the eighth day, that following day, you're bringing birds for sin offerings and burn offerings. And then third step, you consecrate your head once more, a kind of rededication or commitment afresh. And then fourthly, you offer a lamb as a guilt offering. Verses 9 to 12 give you those four steps. Shaving the head, a sacrifice. Consecrating the head, a sacrifice. It's serious, isn't it? It's not as if someone says, okay, I only made a six-month vow. I had five months in, so I'm just going to do one more month of this. No. Six months restarts altogether. So verses 9 to 12 envision the very, very uh, possible situation that in your close proximity of life, someone could die in your time as a Nazarite, rendered null and void. Can you imagine how frustrating that must be? I imagine that kind of thing happens uh, in the Old Testament during the practical lives of these people across the timeline. People have made these vows, and they have done their utmost to avoid this and avoid that, and yet something beyond their control happens. They come in contact with a relative in their home, and now everything has restarted. Now, verses 13 to 21 is the last part of the passage, and then we'll look at how this Nazarite vow works beyond number six. Um, In this completing the Nazarite vow, it tells us in verse 13, this is the law for the Nazarite when the time of his separation has been completed. And you'd say, well, wait, how long is that? Again, it just depends on the vow maker. If it was made for six months, then at the end of those six months. If it was a five-year vow, at the end of those five years. But whenever the time of separation comes to an end, what he does involves several sacrifices. We're told he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, which means right into the tabernacle courtyard in front of that bronze altar. There he is where the priests are going to offer the following things. He shall bring a gift to the Lord in verse 14. One male lamb, a year old, without blemish as a sin offering. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to skip a line there. In verse 14, he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb, uh, a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering. And one ewe lamb, a year old without blemish, as a sin offering. And one ram without blemish, as a peace offering. These are various offerings that come from Leviticus. Uh, So this language, peace offering, sin offering, burnt offering, all of those kinds of offerings are delineated and explained in Leviticus 1-7. to I won't rehearse any of that, but just to point you to that section of Leviticus. And in addition to these animals, he's bringing some bread, some flour. We're told in verse 15, there's a basket of unleavened bread brought, loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offering and their drink offerings. Something to notice here is in Leviticus... Various offerings, including certain grain offerings, can be for food, food for the priest. And certain offerings can have enough meat in the animal that's left, that's not uh, sacrificed, that both priest and worshiper enjoy eating. Um, We just need to remember that the priesthood doesn't have a land allotment. So being from the tribe of Levi, they don't have an allotment in the promised land. They're not out cultivating in working fields. They're ministering on behalf of Israel, doing tabernacle and sacrificial regulations. And so part of the provision of the Lord for the tribe of Levi is through the offerings of the worshipers, allowing them meat and bread, flour. And that's uh, that's what's in view here. So the priest does this in verse 16. He shall bring them before the Lord. And offer his sin offering and his burnt offering, and he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with a basket of unleavened bread. Now I don't think that means he burns up all the bread. It, offering it to the Lord may mean it as something as simple as setting it beside the altar. That this is the place where we offer things to God, and then in that act of symbolism, that becomes a holy donation to be enjoyed by the priest. It tells us the priest shall offer also its grain offering and its drink offering. So through verse 17, we've seen that after the completion of the vow, various animals and grain offerings are brought. Verse 18, and this is a day long awaited for those who had lengthy Nazarite vows. Verse 18, the Nazarite shall shave his his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So right there, okay, you're just getting a haircut. Right there in front of the priest. Right there in the courtyard. There you are. And they're, they're taking the razor to your head. And then shall take the hair and put it in the fire. Yes, you're hearing me right. Putting it in the fire under the sacrifice of the peace offering. So part of this peace offering involves an animal. And with that animal being burned, your hair that you've grown out for however long, weeks, months, or years, that gets burned up because it represents your devotion to God that you have offered unto him. You've given these years, months, weeks, whatever the length of the vow is. And now this this is to symbolize a, uh, a completion and offering to God what you had devoted. If you look in verse 19, the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it's boiled. And one unleavened loaf out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and put them in the hands on the hands of the Nazarite after he shaved the hair of his consecration. The priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They're a holy portion for the priest, together with the breast that's waved and the thigh that's contributed. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. I, I think what we're getting as an impression here is the burnt offerings have been happening. The hair has been added. Well, what about the leftover meat? Including the shoulder of the ram. What about the leftover in the basket of bread? Well, uh, they're going to eat. That's what's, It's like a, a fellowship meal. Okay, They have just had this massive completion. If you have been at a Nazarite goal for years and years, this is an incredibly celebratory moment. You have worked up to this. And so you and the priest are enjoying food, meat, bread, wine. And prior to that, you abstain from wine. Prior to that, you abstained from contact with the dead. Prior to that, you did not cut your hair. There is a resetting then of normal patterns of life. Uh, The last verse gives a summary of what we've just read. This is the law of the Nazarite, that thing that we've just gone through. But if he vows an offering to the Lord above his Nazarite vow, as he can afford in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do in addition to the law of the Nazarite. All right. What is that referring to? Verse 21 says, "Okay, we did require in this law several animals, basket of of bread, but you might be able to do even more than that out of your generosity and devotion." So maybe you can offer more meat, more bread, or other, or other drinks, and here in this situation, that would be welcomed. It would be going beyond what was required, okay? So verse 21 allows that. Somebody might, uh, out of their uh, generosity or devotion, want to give even more. Uh, that, that's probably what is in view, I think. Now, this vow, again, not knowing how much it was practiced in the Old Testament, is something that does occur in the Old Testament with at least a couple figures. Let's look, first of all, at Samson. And we're going to turn to the book of Judges for a moment. I want you to go to Judges 13 with me. If you've got your copy of the Bible in front of you, Judges 13 will be useful to see. Judges 13. Here we have... Nazarite language employed and I want you to notice certain phrasing given what we've just looked at from number six judges 13 tells us of a barren woman and her her husband Manoah who were going to have a son as announced by the angel of the Lord and what we're told in judges 13 4 is this he sorry verse 3 I skipped the angel of the Lord's opening message here. Behold, you are barren and have not born children, you, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, uh, the wife communicates to her husband Manoah what happens, and then the angel of the Lord will appear later to reiterate things like this. We won't look at the the whole of of Judges 13. This part that we've seen is sufficient to show here this language of Nazarite is invoked. So if someone comes to Judges 13 and say, what's it mean that he's a Nazarite? Well, number six, that's your go-to place. And no razor is to touch his head, that's even expressed. We would imply that he shouldn't go near a dead body because that's also in Number six. Notice that the wa- the woman the mother is not to drink wine or strong drink. <clears throat> now why is that the case? Because if a woman is drinking wine, that is something that in her system will be communicated to some degree to the child. In fact, if if it is the case that a mother abuses substances while pregnant, that can tremendously affect the physical condition of the child. If this young, if this young child is to be a Nazarite from the womb, then that means in the womb he is not to have any wine, which means she must not drink any either. Because if, as a pregnant mother, she does, then that, even though the, a small amount, would be enough to render him in violation from the womb. Immediately, we notice something different. Judges 13 doesn't sound voluntary. It doesn't sound temporary. Um, it, it tells us here, he shall be a Nazarite from the womb. And it tells us in verse 3, um, That you shall conceive and bear this son. So, when she conceives and bears this son, his life is to be lived as a Nazarite from the get go. This is a small exception, not the norm. Number six still holds intact. In other words, it's voluntary and temporary for nearly all Israelites unless an angel of Yahweh appears to the parent with more specific information, okay? So, so I, unless the angel of Yahweh comes to an Israelite family, they don't need to worry. Should my child have been a Nazarite from the womb? I don't think that's the concern at all. And Judges 13 gives us the story of Samson. But even more intriguing, I, I think we can see violations of the criteria for a Nazarite in the life of Samson. And not one out of three... Not two out of three, three out of three. Uh, For instance, look in Judges 14. It tells us in verse 8, After some days, Samson returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of a lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell him that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Oh, I wonder why he left out that little detail. I wonder why he avoided mentioning contact with a dead body. And that's because as a Nazarite, he was forbidden. He gives them honey, doesn't tell them where it was from. But Judges 14 shows that he was in violation of the, of the, uh, of the third of the three that are listed in uh, number six. Uh, Look as well with me in in Judges 14 in verse 10, his father and his father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And when you when you see this uh, feast occasion um, and the language that follows later in Judges 14, I think that the Old Testament commentators are right. Who sees Samson here in violation of drinking strong drink or something from the vineyard at this setting. If we also look at the scene with Delilah or scenes with Delilah in Judges 16. Delilah is cutting the hair of Samson. Which renders him weak. Because his devotion to the Lord is clearly compromised. Even prior to this we are worried about Samson's behavior. But here you have a man. A Nazarite from the womb who is in violation of everything that should be avoided by a Nazirite. Look outside of Judges, though. Let's go to 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, another situation of a barren woman longing for a son. Here, Hannah is going to have a son. The Lord is going to open her womb. And in verse 10, she was distressed, has prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly and vowed a vow. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, why is that language being employed? It's tied to one particular vow in the Old Testament. The not letting the razor touch the head is tied to the Nazarite vow in number six. Now, I don't think she has to go on to say, and uh, we'll make him avoid contact with dead bodies or we'll we'll, uh, prohibit him from uh, receiving anything from the vineyard. I think that this language is enough to recall the whole of the vow by mentioning the part. Okay, so there's a way of writing in which you can evoke the whole by mentioning the part. And literally, I think that's what's happening here. Uh, so likely Samson uh, and uh, no, Samson for sure, but likely uh, Samuel is devoted as a Nazarite from birth. And then what I mentioned earlier from the book of Amos, uh, just to read the verse to you in Amos chapter 2, we're told in Amos 2.11. Um It says, I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so? O people of Israel, declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. In other words, where the prophets should prophesy, they ignored and rejected such word from God. And whereas the Nazarites should keep the law and avoid what God said to avoid, they did not take the law seriously in their land and made them drink wine. It's Amos' way through the Lord's oracle there to indict the people for transgression. And, uh, and so you have Samson, you have Samuel, you have this reference to Nazarites in Amos. And that's it from the Old Testament. The New Testament has some intriguing spots. Look with me in Luke chapter 1. In Luke 1, with John the Baptist, there are New Testament scholars who have suggested for a long time that perhaps John the Baptist lived as a Nazarite. Now, where would we get that? What's the language in Luke 1, verse 14 and 15? Luke 1, 14. And you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. So there's this, this prohibition here. And again... The avoidance language, you mustn't drink strong wine, or in other places like in Judges 13 or 1 Samuel 1, no razor shall touch his head. These expressions recall Old Testament Nazarite language. So that's why people have suggested that John the Baptist may have lived as a Nazarite. Does it ever say, John the Baptist lived as a Nazarite? It doesn't. It's a suggestion, but there's good reason for that suggestion because of the strong avoidance language there. Um, Lastly, in uh, the New Testament examples, look with me in Acts. Look in Acts 18. Uh, I want you to notice the Apostle Paul here. Acts 18, beginning in verse 18. Acts 18, 18 says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centrea he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Okay, hold on there. Did you catch that language? He had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So there's that language about a vow. There's language about cutting the hair. But also Acts 21. Go there with me to Acts 21. Just a few chapters later to notice this. Acts 21, 22. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law." But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what was been, what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what's been strangled and from sexual immorality. Verse 26 says the response of Paul. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So there's language here in Acts 21 about people shaving their heads in verse 24, some length of time for a vow, entrance at the temple, the bringing of offerings. Friends, what we're saying is the clustering of these phrases evokes the Nazarite practice. So it does seem that on occasion, the Apostle Paul took temporary, voluntary vows of the Nazarite. Um, And in Acts 21 and Acts 18, I think we have a couple examples of those. Now, of course, he also, for different reasons, uh, circumcised uh, Timothy. um, But he wasn't imposing on the Gentiles aspects of Israel's ritual and ceremonial activity that would naturally bring them to the temple or the tabernacle before that. Uh, So if you were to say, well, okay, as Christians... Should we take the Nazarite vow? Like, what's going on there? Now, in my judgment, I've thought about this this week. I want to make a broad point first and then a specific one. My broad point is the Bible does not forbid the taking of vows now that we are believers. Rather, we are to let our yes be yes, our no be no, keep our word and promises, and not be one who says this and then does another. In other words, when we make commitments and enter into contracts and covenants, we ought to be people who keep those things with integrity. But um, the Old Testament has backing about this same idea. The Old and New Testaments include vow language. I don't think it is wrong for Christians to treat relationships in in the kind of way where we speak to to, uh, use words of commitment and covenant or vows. I mean, friends, this is what's happening on a wedding day. Like, that's what's happening. So when when you are making those kinds of commitments, it's never done lightly. Like the, these, are, these are things said from our words of devotion before the Lord, but then more specifically here. The Nazarite vow was something done and then completed with a view toward coming to the tabernacle to burn with various offerings. A sin offering, a burnt offering, a peace offering, uh, the, the consecrated hair that the priest was going to receive. And various elements like that, we recognize, Okay, immediately in the new covenant, we're in different territory like that. That's not quite the situation here. So I don't see the Nazarite vow as something that is one to one uh, with the life of the believer. That's not to say there can't be good reasons for times of separation, devotion and focus in our own spiritual lives. For thinking on the terms of thinking on terms like discipline and self-control, testing one's body uh, and mind spiritually, um, and I even think the, the uh, discipline of fasting fits in this same kind of category, where this might not be what someone's normal pattern of living is, but it is something taken up voluntarily for a kind of devotion unto the Lord for a particular amount of time. But it's not meant to. Puff up self righteousness. It's not meant to establish superiority or someone's greater holiness and spirituality compared to others. It's rather to be seen as something to be humbly embraced in dependence on the Lord, but to be treated um, differently, I think, than in the old covenant community. So I think there are some differences, but uh, as believers, uh, we want to be those who live in faithfulness to the Lord. It's not as if we don't want to take the Lord seriously. You know, only the really serious. Christians follow Christ. No, uh, we recognize that's what Christians do. So we want to commit our lives to the Lord in devotion. And, uh, and there may be seasons of life or times of retreat or spiritual separation where somebody is focusing in a way uh, for their own mind and body. Um, I don't think the Bible prohibits that. Uh, But I do think those sorts of seasons should be thought of as outside the normal pattern of one's Christian life so that someone wouldn't say, well, you know, the way I live, I avoid this and I avoid that and I avoid that and I avoid this. So, uh, you know, I live that way, unlike some of the rest of you who are just not as serious about the Lord as I am. Uh, We would have to avoid, I think, the temptation of using things that we would abstain from that are matters of indifference, uh, because, again, cutting one's hair Uh, The drinking something from the vineyard um, and the uh, contact with the dead, these are not matters of of sin, okay? So uh, knowing that we should all be repenting sinners and turning from evil, we look then at the category of matters of indifference that are not moral issues, no one should look at those and then characterize their life in the way in a way that says, well, look how many restrictions I place upon myself. I am really, really holy. Okay, so we, we would want to recognize those old temptations probably existed in this day as well, in number six. And those uh, shadows of our self-righteousness may persist into our day. Now, what about the matter of the gospel in Christ Jesus? Uh, well, a few final thoughts here as we uh, wind up our time. Jesus is not described... Is living as a Nazarite. I mean, he actually turns water into wine at the wedding, and with disciples and tax collectors and sinners, uh, is seen feasting and enjoying uh, fruit of the vineyard and food in general with uh, with others. Uh, Jesus not only makes contact with the dead body. When he makes contact with dead bodies, they actually come back to life. And so when you when you think about uh, Jesus's very unique ministry, it's not as if we look at Jesus and say, "Oh yeah, you know, another Nazarite has come along." Um, this is different. This is different. And yet, what was a Nazarite meant to foreshadow? Well, it tells us in number six, making the vow was for the goal of living in a separated, wholly devoted way to the Lord. Well, setting aside the Nazarite restrictions for a moment, there has never been one dwelling among man more wholly devoted to the Lord with utter delight, seriousness, and single-mindedness than the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, everything that the Nazarite vow would want to hold forth for a sinner to pursue, Jesus embodies perfectly. In other words, he is the absolute consummate fulfillment of any kind of holy devotion that the Nazarite vow would signal. Um, And so in that sense, the Nazarite vow, like other ritual and ceremonial and institutional things in Israel, have shadows that I think point to Christ. You're not surprised to hear me say that. I say things like this all the time. Um, But nonetheless, I believe it is true that the Old Testament shadows, including the Nazarite vow, can point us to the one who would dwell among us with utter consecration and holiness for all he would come to do. And, And more broadly... You know, Israel was to be a holy nation unto the Lord, and we are to be a holy people unto a Lord, uh, the Lord. So rather than thinking about the grapevine or contact with the dead, or which was a, about ritual and ceremonial fittedness, or even the, the length of one's hair, all of these things were working like symbols, right, in the ancient world of one's life being given to the Lord. And here's what Jesus says. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. And take up his cross and follow after me. In other words, I think it's not about saying to follow Jesus, all right, we're gonna have to start talking about Nazarite restrictions. No, instead, we get an image of a cross, a cross which puts to death the seeking of self above all and the love of what would dishonor God. And therefore, we are reminded that in following Jesus, we do not only turn from evil, we bring all matters, even of indifference and neutrality to the Lord, praying that in matters of indifference, we at least will walk with wisdom, discretion and discernment. We want to honor and glorify the Lord. And therefore, uh, we recognize that that's not something we take temporarily. Um, we would be more in the vein of someone like uh, Samuel or Samson, though not from the womb, that at uh, the following after Christ, it would then consist of all of the rest of the days of our lives that we would be holy before him. Let's pray.